Well, good morning, Grace. So good to see you all. I love being here gathered. I feel far away from you, even those of you who are here. Wish I could walk right among you, but we can't. So I'm going to just stand here and preach the word. I love, love, love the psalm that we have before us this morning. Would you open your Bibles to Psalm 107? This psalm has become precious to me. I have a friend that Sam and I just, my son Sam and I just went on a backpacking trip with, and he said something that struck me deeply. He was talking about the role the Word of God should play in our lives, and Jeff said that there are times in my life when I say things like, I need to get to Psalm 32 as fast as I can. As a man who's desperate for the word of God to feed his soul, to bolster him and give him strength and encouragement, that's how we need to be for the word of God. We need to be desperate in that sort of way. And this psalm helps us to see that very perspective. And so we need to get to Psalm 107 as quickly as we possibly can. So I want to dive into it. Let me pray for us. Lord, we have been singing of your amazing love. Your love that is stunning to us when we truly understand it. But it is hard for us to truly understand it. It doesn't come instinctively to the hearts of sinful fallen people, doubt does, rebellion does. And so as we come to your word this morning, we pray that we would, from your word, be instructed about your love. You are the great God of love. You have broken our chains and released us from the prison of our sin and the death we incurred from it. So would you help us to know you as you are, not as our culture may teach us you are or our natural inclinations would lead us to believe, but help us to know you according to the scriptures we pray in Jesus' name, amen. Psalm 107 has uh, several parts to it I want you to realize. It's got an introduction and a conclusion. It's got four examples of sinners and sufferers who go through a cycle of desperate dependence on God, crying out to the Lord, being rescued by the Lord, and expressing gratitude and praise in response to that rescue. Then we have a description of God's character before the conclusion. I want to actually go in reverse in studying this psalm. I need very often to know where I'm going before I get there or else I won't get there. And so I want to start this morning with the conclusion of Psalm 107 in verse 43. Here it is. Whoever is wise... Let him attend to these things. I love that. Attend to these things. Pay attention to them. Let them consider, ponder, really think about, dwell upon the steadfast 
love of God. That's the purpose of this whole psalm. The conclusion shows us the purpose of the psalm. That's what we're here for this morning. This has been a theme throughout the summer. We did not get together and decide thematically in any way what psalms we were going to preach on this summer. It was left up to each preacher of each psalm to choose which psalm they wanted to preach. And we have seen clearly God no doubt wanted us to consider his steadfast love. Of anything else we have pondered this summer through the Psalms, his steadfast love has clearly been the main thing that God clearly wants us to think about, his steadfast love. Throughout the summer, that's been the emphasis, this wonderful description of God's love in this Hebrew word, chesed, this steadfast, enduring, persevering, pursuing, never to be denied love of God that comes after us in our sin. Not once we get our sin problem figured out. Oh, that could never be that way. But in our sin, in our ugliness, in our desperate, helpless, hopeless condition, that's when God's pursuing steadfast love comes toward us. You know, English translations will pile up adjectives and descriptions of this love because the word love just doesn't get it. And we are commanded here, if you're wise, to listen, to pay attention, to attend to, to ponder, to consider the steadfast love of God. His love that, as my friend Ed Curtis says, will never wash his hands of his wayward bride. He never gives up on his bride. He never gives up on his children. He pursues us, and if we're wise, we will spend all of our lives seriously pondering, considering the steadfast love of the Lord. And as we'll see in this psalm, there is a what, a where, a why, and a how to this love. The what of his love is what I just said, loyal, relentless, pursuing love that will never be denied. The where of his love, what do I mean by that? Where do you find this understanding of the love of God? Well, many of you may sit there and say, well, everybody just kind of knows God is loving. And I can understand why you'd come to that conclusion because our culture basically teaches us that God is loving. If there's one thing people know about God in general in our society is that he's loving. They'll even quote 1 John and say he is love. And that becomes the all-encompassing description of who God is. And so it may not shock you to find out that God has steadfast love towards sinners and sufferers, but it should. That's what our worship time thus far has been trying to instill in you, an understanding of God's steadfast love, not just as something assumed, but something stunningly wonderful. How can it be, is what we were just singing. And I fear that our greatest problem this morning is assuming the steadfast love of God instead of being shocked by it. The biblical perspective doesn't assume God is loving towards sinners and sufferers. Oh no, the biblical perspective fully understands the holiness of God, the greatness of God, the righteousness of God. So the biblical perspective is floored by a love of God poured out to desperate sinners. And we really need to do some, some uh, counter-cultural thinking this morning. 
People say, well, God's loving. You learn that from all the world religions, don't you? No, you don't. Have you studied the world religions? They don't have anything to this quality of love that the Bible teaches us as true of the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob who sent his son Jesus into the world. You don't learn this from world religions. Even though people desperately want to believe they're all basically the same, they're not. You don't learn this from world cultures, and you don't learn this from nature. I hear in Southern California all the time, oh, God is love because just look at the sunset and the ocean, the mountains and the trees. They don't go on and say, and parasites and viruses and stingrays that bite you and paralyze your leg and animals eating other animals and, and praying mantises eating her mate after they mate. I mean, you have all sorts of examples that are quite troubling if you just look at nature. We're just very selective about the ones we choose. You don't learn the steadfast love of God just by looking at nature or culture or world religions. You learn it by looking at the word of God. You find this, yes, with the idea of the holy that is generally perceived in world religions, with great fear and terror as the response. But we find in the Bible something radically wonderful that doesn't come from culture or religion or intuition or nature. It comes from God's revelation about himself. That's what we depend on, God's revelation about himself. How else can we know that he loves us to death? Which is exactly what he does in his son. So the what is a loyal, relentless, pursuing love. The where is right from the scriptures. The why the why is very important as well as we will see. The why is because of who he is. That's it. Not because of what you have done or proven or demonstrated or earned. That is what every other religion in the world teaches. But the gospel of Jesus Christ, the word of God teaches us that God's love is something that flows from his character unprovoked by anything outside of himself. For God so loved the world and all of its badness and sin that he sent his son. He didn't send his son so he could love us. He sent his son because he did love us, as has been said. So we need to understand that God's very nature is to be a God of love. And finally, we will see this morning how? The how. How does he do this? Well, he does it in creation. He shows love in creating everything. But he recognizes the fall of humanity and the radical solution needed for it out of his love, which is called redemption. So we need to understand God's love in light of creation, the fall, and the redemption of God, saving lost sinners, ultimately through his son, Jesus, whose name, by the way, means Yahweh saves. That's what Yeshua, that's what Joshua means. Yahweh saves. And we should say that in amazement. Look at verse 1. Now that we've seen the conclusion, look at verse 1 of Psalm 107 and verse 2 of Psalm 107. Beautiful introduction. Oh, give thanks to the Lord. For he is good. For his steadfast love endures forever. His goodness is seen through the enduring steadfastness of his love 
forever. And then there's a command here, let the redeemed of the Lord say so, whom he has redeemed from trouble and gathered in from lands from the east and from the west and from the north and from the south. Do you realize what's being commanded here? Emotions, attitudes, as well as actions. We tend to think of emotions as something that completely take over and control us. No, they're not. They're commanded here. We are commanded to have attitudes and emotions and actions that flow from them. Oh yes, brought about by the Spirit's work in our lives, according to the scriptures, but commanded nonetheless. And so we are to consider the steadfast love of the Lord so that we are able to obey this command to give praise and express gratitude from hearts that believe God is good because his steadfast love endures forever. That is the very character of God. And that's what we see in verses 33 through 42. Look, look there, we're going to skip to the end again. I want you to see how clearly this flows from the character of God. Verse 33, he turns rivers into a desert springs of water into thirsty ground, a fruitful land into a salty waste because of the evil of its inhabitants. Now, I want you to realize how stunning that verse is. We tend to think God's love means there's no judgment. And I fear sometimes that's what we think when we hear God's love's unconditional. What we hear is he doesn't really care about sin. Well, we see here that's not the case. He brings judgment in response to the evil of humans. He brings judgment we call the curse. He turns a river into a desert, springs of water into thirsty ground, fruitful land into a salty waste. He judges sin, but thank God the story doesn't end there. He turns a desert into pools of water, a parched land into springs of water. And there he lets the hungry dwell, and they establish a city to live in. They sow fields and plant vineyards and get a fruitful yield. By his blessing, they multiply greatly, and he does not let their livestock diminish. When they're diminished and brought low through oppression, evil, and sorrow, he pours contempt on princes. There's the judgment again. And makes them wander in trackless wastes, but he raises up the needy out of affliction. Do you see? There is a prideful, rebellious person who receives the judgment of God. But there is someone who recognizes their neediness in profound humility before God, who then will cry out to him, as we'll see. And they find streams of living water. They find food that they'll never hunger again when they partake of it. They will find the answers, the solutions, the freedom that they desperately need. He raises the needy out of affliction. Do you see yourself as needy this morning? Oh, needy and Christian are two words that couldn't go together more than they do. Do you want to present a persona that isn't needy? If that's true, you can never really be a Christian. Because before God, we are all desperately needy, desperately need, needing his rescue, his salvation. 
And, and this is talking about the great reversal, the God who brings the great reversal. Yes, who judges sin, but in the very midst of judging it, as we see in Genesis 3, he brings about a solution. He brings about a plan of salvation through the seed of the woman, Jesus, who came, and he saves us from our desperate condition. And only those who realize they're desperate and needy will find this rescue. If you think you're a self-made man or woman or can somehow solve your great problems on your own without God, you couldn't be more wrong. God saves us. I have a friend, I absolutely love Dan Miller. Uh, he, we went to a seminary together and Dan was one of the most, I, I've never met anyone like Dan. Dan is one of those guys who's one of a kind. I've never met, I could tell you stories about Dan Miller. He's a big Bob Dylan fan, and he was older than most of the other seminary students, and he just was so wise, and of course, was kind of shocking in some of the things he would say. But I got to know Dan well, and I've never met anyone who appreciates this reversal of how things seem to inevitably be going that this is talking about. We're in a desperate situation. We, we, we're a runaway locomotive on the way to disaster. And Dan so understood that. And as I got to know Dan, I think one of the reasons he so loved this reversal of fortune, which he saw in just about every story he ever read or TV show he ever watched, that things are going in a bad direction. And whether it's Lord of the Rings or a lazy, a lousy Brady Bunch episode, you've got a problem that seems unsolvable. And then the solution has to come from somewhere. It's no coincidence that this theme is in all the great literature of the world. It's the story of human history. And I realized Dan, I think one of the reasons he loved this so much is because he, he grew up with a profound stutter. Like one of the things, were, uh, sounds he couldn't make was the D sound, which is a real bummer when your name is Dan. And he stuttered and, and Dan actually learned and I would watch him do it to see a stutter coming in the sentence he was about to say, realize the word that was gonna throw him off and just switch the word. And he'd get through the sentence. It, it, I, it was exhausting for him. He was constantly figuring out how to navigate every sentence he spoke from uh, relational disaster as a little kid would have felt it. And it deepened his appreciation of his need for rescue. Because every sentence Dan said was a potential problem in this conversation he was having. And I love that God used Dan Stutter to teach him a profound theological truth of God is the God who rescues us from situations we could never rescue ourselves from. That's who he is and that's who God is as we see here. So let's see how God pictures this desperate situation in four images. The wanderer, the prisoner, the fool, and the sailor. Verse four. My prayer is that every one of us can relate to every one of these pictures because we should. Some wandered in the desert waste, verse four finding no way to a city to dwell in. Hungry and thirsty, their soul fainted within them. Then they cried out to the Lord in their trouble, and he delivered them from their distress. He led them by a straight way till they reached a city to dwell in. Let them thank the Lord for his steadfast love, for his wondrous works to the children of man. For he satisfies the longing soul and the hungry soul he fills with good. The first image 
of the wanderer, the homeless wanderer. This is a desperate situation he's in. He is a sojourner, an alien. He's not home. And as, as always does, what comes with that is hunger and thirst. They recognize their homelessness, their lack of a place of shalom and home and peace and rest. And they cry out to the Lord because they recognize their desperate condition. Dear ones, if you don't see yourself in that picture, you can't be a Christian. A Christian is someone who realizes they're not home yet. They don't store up their treasures on earth right here where moth and rust destroy and thieves break in and steal and viruses come in and wipe out a world economy. They could never be satisfied here. They realize they're not home yet and every godly person is a little bit homesick, at least a little bit. And we need to be able to relate to this. And cry out to the Lord for help. The imagery here, I think, is, is drawing in, in, in a Jewish mindset from Babylonian captivity, not being home, sojourners and aliens in a foreign land, not home yet. And there is an unsettledness to life, even when circumstances are good. I hope you still recognize this isn't our home. It's true of the Israelites in Babylonian captivity, and it's true of us as well. And this pattern begins with this image, desperate condition, cry to the Lord for help, a loving God who rescues, and gratitude and worship that flow from it. Now here is something I need to emphasize here. I'm convinced this is another one of our big problems. We think it's impossible to learn from Jews in Babylonian captivity because we've got such a priority on immediate experience individually. Well, the Bible assumes we will be gleaning faith today, drawing from this psalmist who wrote so long ago about things that happened so long ago, but we are to gain faith from this and apply it to our sojourn, our wandering in homelessness. We are to relate to verses 10 through 16. The condemned prisoner. Some sat in darkness and in the shadow of death, prisoners in affliction and in irons, for they had rebelled against the words of God. They spurned the counsel of the Most High. So he bowed their hearts down with hard labor. They fell down with none to help. Then they cried to the Lord in their trouble, and he delivered them from their distress. He brought them out of darkness and the shadow of death and burst their bonds apart. Let them thank the Lord for his steadfast love, for his wondrous works to the children of man, for he shatters the doors of bronze and cuts into the bars of iron. The wanderer doesn't seem to have done anything to be uh, wandering. It's just the condition of life in this fallen world. But the prisoner, we're told, is in prison because of his sin. His head is bowed down. He's bowed low in this way and needs deliverance because he got himself into this mess. And that's what I want you to realize. These middle two images are responsible for their condition in a very direct way. The first and the last don't seem to be. They seem to be just subject to life in a fallen and cursed world. And those two things are always true of us, aren't they? We're all subject to life in a fallen world that beats us up and wears us out and makes us desperate for God. 
But we also always need to realize our culpability in all these situations. We each contribute to the mess we're in. All of us. And not some because you've committed certain sins and a certain amount of sins. No, we're all told in the Bible that we are all in this together. We are all desperately wicked. We are all in bondage to sin and slavery of sin until Jesus rescues us. And then we have the fool, the sick fool, the unhealthy fool. Some, verse 17, were fools through their sinful ways and because of their iniquities, suffered affliction. They loathed any kind of food and they drew near to the gates of death. They cried to the Lord in their trouble and he delivered them from their distress and he sent out his word and healed them and delivered them from their destruction. Let them thank the Lord for his steadfast love, for his wondrous works to the children of man. Keep hearing this refrain, this command, this motivation for praise and gratitude. Let them offer sacrifices of thanksgiving and tell of his deeds in songs of joy. Can you relate to the fool? Oh, I can relate to the fool. And the older I get, and then therefore the wiser I'm supposed to be, the more and more I can relate to the fool. I've got less and less excuses. I can no longer say, oh, it was just youthful indiscretion. No, I'm a fool. So often I recognize my foolishness. Even if you don't see it, I'm so aware of it in my heart by the grace of God as the Spirit brings conviction. And I hope you are too. And this foolishness needs to a sickness. I think of addictions and, and things we give ourselves to, whether it's overwork or idolatry. It leads to poor, needy states, heart-stricken. We don't even want to eat. There's a sickness that comes from this. I hope you can relate to the fool who's so unhealthy because of his foolishness. He's killing himself because of his foolishness. And it's so easier to see in others than ourselves, but let, let's ask God to see the foolishness in each of our hearts. And finally, the helpless sailor, verse 23. Some went down to the sea in ships, doing business on the great waters. They saw the deeds of the Lord, his wondrous works in the deep, for he commanded and raised the stormy wind, which lifted up the waves in the sea. They mounted up to heaven. They went down to the depths, massive waves that are terrifying them, well out of their control. Even the most skilled sailor can do nothing about this. Their courage melted away in their evil plight. They reeled and staggered like drunken men and were at their wits end. Then they cried to the Lord in their trouble, and he delivered them from their distress. He made the storms be still, and the waves of the sea were hushed. And what's the result? Then they were glad that the waters were quiet, and he brought them to their desired haven. Let them thank the Lord for his steadfast love, for his wondrous works to the children of man. Let them extol him in the congregation of the people, and praise him in the assembly of the elders." 
the helpless sailor subject to God's power in creation that is well beyond your control. Sam and I just got back from a, a very difficult, very long backpacking trip in the remote Sierras. And the, the Rosencrans, uh, Jack and Scott went with us with some other guys. It was a discipleship trip and it was incredibly difficult. And we felt so small in our frailty, in our weakness, in the midst of these giant peaks and amazing rivers, as beautiful as they were, they were humbling to the core. And creation should not just cause us to exalt in God's greatness, but humble us before that greatness as these sailors had no doubt had to recognize. These wandering sailors. We live in life in a cursed world, but realize none of this is happening randomly. God is raising these seas and these oceans to humble us. And one of my deepest concerns for this COVID time for this society seeming to come apart at the fringes, at the seams, to me is that this time, friends, needs to humble us. And I wonder if we're becoming more arrogant than ever before. I have no doubt what God's wanting to do in the midst of this virus and these social issues just to humble every single one of us. And I fear we're growing in pride. And if, you know, Trump has an announcement today. And what if it's a vaccine? And what if we figure out this virus? Aren't humans amazing? And we'd be more proud than when this whole thing started. Humility is what God is always wanting from his people. We're all sinners and sufferers. We're all guilty and pitiable. We're all rebels and we're all hurt. And until we're rescued, we're all just lost in a wild world trapped, unable to do anything about our problems. And friends, we've got to see ourselves in these images. Not, if you're a Christian, you can identify with all four of these pictures. A wanderer with no home, an orphan needing a family. That's who, who you were if you're a Christian. If, if you're a Christian, you can relate to every single one of these images. Someone who is lost and on their way home. Someone who's a prisoner can do nothing to solve the prison your sin has brought to you. You can understand the foolishness and not walking in God's ways. You can understand being controlled by forces outside of yourself that you can do nothing about. You understand these things and you don't leave them behind. You never forget what you were freed from, but you also realize life continues to be a battle. And you continue to need to go with to God in this. If you're not a Christian this morning, please consider how accurately these things describe you if you're being honest with yourself. And if you are a Christian, realize that you never leave these things behind in your recognition of who you are. So what do we do? Here's, here's what I've been pondering for, for actually years as I first was thinking about this psalm. How do I live in this state of desperate need before God? when my circumstances aren't forcing me to. I don't want to have to need being lost at sea or wandering in homelessness circumstantially. I don't want to be taken over by some addiction and foolishness. I don't, I don't want to have to be in prison to depend on God with desperation because I'm always desperate for him, no matter my circumstances. And I think the fundamental way we stay in a place of desperate need for God is basic spiritual disciplines. 
committing to the word and prayer and fasting and fellowship and giving and suffering and missions and evangelism. I think committing to those main things we do continue to humble us and realize that completely unable to do them with fruitfulness we are until God, by the Spirit's work, according to the scriptures, helps us do that, enables us to do that. Because we're all desperate. And we all need to, on a daily basis, and realize to be a Christian, it means we cry to the Lord in our trouble. We don't run to the latest statistics, whether we're past the curve or not, or have a solution medically in sight, or have some political solution to the problems in our society. We're not waiting for the election to be desperate and run to God as the only one who can rescue Oh, he uses means of all kinds, but he's the one orchestrating it all. They cried to the Lord in their trouble, and he delivered them from their distress. Verse 6, 13, 19, and 28 all say that. We are not the masters of our fate. Jesus wants us to be not like the Pharisee who says, God, I thank you I'm not like that tax collector, but like the tax collector who says, God be merciful to me, a sinner. That's where the Christian life begins, seeing God for who he is and ourselves as sinners only being able to be saved by him. And that man goes home righteous. You can't fix your greatest problems of sin and death and a broken relationship with God. And the wonderful news is the way God rescues us is through the one named Yahweh saves Jesus is our substitute, and astoundingly, the way he does it is by walking our streets and feeling the pain described in this psalm. Would you, would you just go um, to Luke 4 and see how Jesus introduces his whole purpose for coming? Listen to what he does, Luke 4, verse 18. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me. Because he's anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor, the wanderer, the homeless. He sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives, the prisoners, and recovery of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, those at sea, the fools, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And he rolled up the scroll and gave it back to the attendant and sat down. And the eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed on him. And he began to say to them, today, this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. Jesus comes to solve, to rescue, to answer, to redeem all of us from our desperate condition. Oh, we all struggle in this cursed world, and the astounding thing is the primary means of doing this for us is by becoming one of us. Jesus, the Son of God, the creator of the world, who comes with divine authority and power, understands hunger and thirst and chains and beatings and imprisonment quite literally quite directly he understands what it means to struggle and suffer with temptation and overcame our sin every time he was tempted and he not only is the sympathetic high priest who sympathizes with our weakness. He's the son of God who rose from the dead and had the power to conquer that sin he was tempted to 
to break those bars and chains that keep us captive. He is powerful enough as well as sympathetic enough to be the great high priest we all desperately need. And then unless you get to the end of yourself, you'll never get to the foot of the cross. And so we need to realize that we need to live life at the end of ourselves and at the foot of the cross, at the feet of Jesus, the only place we will find rescue. He's the one who brings the homeless home sets the prisoner free, brings wisdom to the fool, and brings home and safety to the sailor. He does this through his own life in our place. And he calms the storm. He breaks the chains. And if you are not at the end of yourself and at the feet of Jesus, please make this the day that becomes your posture before God and everyone else. And if you are a Christian, realize that we never stop needing to get to the end of ourselves until we finally see Jesus face to face and hear, well done, good and faithful servant. Heavenly Father, help us to recognize our desperate need. We love to puff ourselves up and think we somehow are responsible even for our lives, for our successes, for our accomplishments. It's all gift, Lord. And we recognize also that this world is sick and filled with foolishness and desperation. Lord, help us each to understand that and flee to Jesus. And Lord, if anyone hasn't done this this morning, I pray that they would seek answers and prayer in Christ. Lord, I pray they would... Uh, go to prayer at graceevfree.org and ask for prayer if they're not here, if they're here to go to someone in leadership here and, and ask for that. And Lord, please bring them to yourself today. And for each of us, Lord, bring us to the end of ourselves and to the feet of Jesus continually throughout our lives. And each day we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.